So how are you? We're over halfway through January already, and many of us are realizing that trading 2020 for 2021 might not have been the deal we bargained for. You know, it's a little bit like, like, hello, can I speak to someone in customer services? My 2021 doesn't appear to be working properly. <laughs> and we're, you know, we're not all affected in the same way by the constant uncertainty and, and ever-present stress that's going on around us. But one thing seems to be consistently true. As we discussed in our last teaching video, when the storm of life hits us, it exposes how deep our roots are. And this can be difficult for us because our culture, our society and surroundings can tend towards being shallow, you know, looking for quick results rather than the long, slow work of growing well. Kind of like building on sand rather than rock. Or like the iceberg, we get more worried about what's visible above the surface than the actual dangers that no one else can see. And that's what I'm talking about in this series called Deep. As the superficiality of our society has begun to inform our understanding of following Jesus, Christians and churches have often embraced life in the shallow end and have found it increasingly difficult to navigate the realities of our culture. So, in line with our big read project here at WKC, where we're reading uh, this book by Rich Fiodas, The Deeply Formed Life, this series is looking to engage with some of the things that will help us live more deeply. So thinking about contemplative rhythms, about racial reconciliation, about sexual wholeness, and things like this. So let's go back, though, to my first question. How are you? Now, for many of us, this is barely more than a greeting these days. And if you could, if you wanted to, pause the video just now and actually think about the question, or, or maybe the word just, I'm okay, just sort of rolls automatically off your tongue when you hear someone ask, how are you? What fascinates me is that even through almost a year of working from home and restricted behavior, I still commonly hear the same response to the question, how are you? And you know what that response is, don't you? Yeah, that's the one busy. Which kind of makes me want to ask you a related question. I, I, rather than just simply, how are you? I, I want to ask, who feels like they have too much going on? Can you conceptualize what it's like not to say busy when asked, how are you? Or if you're the type of person whose life is well-balanced and organized, are you brave enough to admit that you don't feel busy? And would you admit that to your boss? And, and here lies what I think is one of the narratives of the modern world. At some point, after we were told that, we, that getting good grades made us a good person, we connected our self-worth to our achievements and began to pursue the life society modeled of being, as that great theologian Tom York puts it, fitter, happier, more productive. But what is the cost to us? Well, part of the problem is that if we are lucky enough to achieve what our society demands of us, we then become pressured to maintain and sustain that type of success. 
And I'm tempted to think that this is culturally the reason that we, that we are, well, as a society, exhausted. And this level of exhaustion isn't without cost. Like we now have documented evidence that the higher the pressure to perform, the greater the averages of self-harm, depression, and suicide. Like the leading cause of death, more than cancer and heart disease, of North American adults under 50 is self-harm. Between 1999 and 2014, the suicide rates amongst middle-aged men rose 43% and amongst women, 63%. And they're continuing to rise. And I, and I realize that there are intricate complexities in all of this, but I don't think it's exaggerating to say that many of our lives are exhausted and overwhelmed. And, and this leaves like lots of us feeling emotionally overloaded which in turn challenges our sense of security, our, our sense of being in control of our lives. And like, I know like you, <laughs> that we're not in control of everything that happens around us. And, and we're kind of generally okay-ish about that. <laughs> but if enough things start to build up, and the psychological term for these things is stressors, if enough stressors start to build up, then the overwhelm and the exhaustion become what we all know as stress. And I'm of the opinion that stress is probably the biggest threat to our mental well-being in the modern world. We all experience it. Those moments of reduced personal control where the, where the fight or flight instinct of our brain sort of dumps adrenaline and the stress hormone cortisol into our system. And, and like, there's nothing intrinsically bad about this physiological response. As I've, as I've said before, it's what keeps you alive when you encounter a bear. You need your body to do that in the high stress times. But if we live in a context where this intensity happens all the time, or or it's regularly the case that the effects of our, our brains are constantly sort of wired up and, and kind of overloaded, then this is quite easily identified in many of us. You know, we can all spot a stressed person, right? But the strange thing is how glibly we talk about stress. It, almost as if it, it's not really a, a proper thing. Yet not only is stress a real thing happening in your body, but it takes your body between 20 and 60 minutes to get all of its adrenaline and cortisol levels back to normal after a stress event. And don't forget, of course, that oftentimes we're carrying our exhaustion in the midst of all of this. So you're already exhausted and dealing with stress. Now, the writer Andrew Solomon points out that if you live in a context where, where stress becomes ever-present or, or regular, then this protracted increase of your cortisol levels damages your system, and you end up sort of stuck in fight-or-flight mode. Like that, that sense of constant twitchiness becomes your new normal. Which kind of opens up yet another question for us. Like when was the last time that you didn't feel stressed or exhausted or overwhelmed.
Like, have we all been living permanently stressed out for almost a year now? There's a recent study just out from the University of Regina, and they have identified five related stress facets that are directly impacting upon us as a result of the pandemic. And these five areas of impact are, are this. Number one, they're noticing an increased fear of contamination and danger, a sense that, oh my goodness, like what if, what if I encounter coronavirus? Secondly, they're noticing an increase of fear uh, and concern for our socioeconomic stability and well-being. Thirdly, xenophobia is on the arise. Xenophobia, this fear of strangers and foreigners. Essentially, we're seeing this rising as we're concerned about people traveling and, and different cultures and how they re relate to COVID. Number four, traumatic stress. And, and number five, compulsive checking and reassuring. You know, have I washed that? Have I cleaned that? Is everybody else playing by the rules? Are my neighbors doing what we're all supposed to be doing? Now, psychologists are calling these five things markers of COVID stress syndrome. And in its severe cases, which is thought to be around about 16% of us, we see that this COVID stress syndrome increases tendencies towards anxiety or depression, or the distress at having to isolate and be on our own, or we're seeing avoidance behaviors develop, and also panic buying and stockpiling. The study reported that 50% of the general population are reporting elevated levels of distress due to the pandemic, and that this is creating a substantial mental health footprint. And, and this real worry and concern for us is how we all individually handle that. Like often our tendency as humans is to develop like really bad coping mechanisms, such as overeating or overusing drugs and alcohol. Or it starts to unknowingly affect our mood and behavior, which in turn leads to relational damage and further isolation. And this is kind of known as a stress cycle where our attempts to cope actually generate more stress, more exhaustion, and more overwhelm. But you know, is there, is there a deeper response to stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm? And a, a response that's something other than just reacting poorly or developing bad coping mechanisms. I find myself continually drawn back to the behavior of Jesus as an example of what the deep life looks like when everything else seems to get a little out of control. The text that I want to read is in Mark chapter 1, and it's uh, verses uh, 32 through to 38. The story begins with Jesus having just come off the back of a pretty tired you know, sequence of events, uh, finally culminating in the fact that he's just healed his friend's mother-in-law. And as you might imagine, in a small town, word got out about this. So we'll pick up the story in Mark chapter 1, verse 32 here. The text says, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. 
the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now, even by Jesus' standards, this is a pretty busy day. Like, there's a lot going on, and it's a recipe for exhaustion. Like the Bible writer's language of after sunset is a, is a kind of subtle way of telling you that, you know what, this is just a little unreasonable. <laughs> Jesus is being asked to, to work at this sort of level. But I want you just to analyze this for a moment with me. Like healing the sick and casting out demons sounds tiring, right? And in fact, in every other year when I've read this passage, it's the demons bit that sounds the most uncomfortable, the bit you'd think, goodness, I wouldn't like to have to deal with that. But it struck me as I read this passage in 2021 that actually the anxiety in this passage is now created by being surrounded by all those ill folks. Like, you know, it's a little bit triggering for us in our day and age now, isn't it? But Jesus is also in the midst of casting out demons and healing all these uh, ill people. He's dealing with all of the expectations of the town. The whole town are expecting much from him. I'm not sure how you deal with this, but can we agree that this is potentially an overwhelming situation? Like, how would you deal with it? How does Jesus deal with it? Well, the story continues in verse 35. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everybody is looking for you. <laughs> if you ever want to know what a stressor looks like, that's one right there. Everybody's looking for you. And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to nearby villages, so I can preach there also, because that is why I have come. So, in the face of all of the expectation, demands, stressors, possible overwhelm, and impending exhaustion, Jesus steps away early and prays. Before all the pressure of a new day starts, very early, Mark tells us. You see the contrast? He's up beyond dark, beyond sunset. That's out of his control. There's all these people here. They all need his help, and he's forced to stay up late. But he gets up early, something which is in his control. It's within his, his influence. Like, do you kind of see what Jesus is doing here? Like he's pausing, resting, takes a breath, stops, praise. Jesus kind of does what a good psychologist would tell him to do. And, and, and for me, that's not hugely surprising because I think that Jesus gets being alive. I think he was the, the master in the, in the art of, of living. He gets that his capacity is governed by his ability and you can't run on empty forever. The writer Parker Palmer argues that our burnout doesn't come from giving so much away that we have nothing left, but rather, he says, our burnout merely reveals the nothingness from which I was trying to give in the first place. 
Like, just think about that for a second. It's not that I've given everything away and I have nothing left. It's that maybe I was trying to give from somewhere that was empty. Like, like do we need to learn how to think in a way that, that isn't, as Rich Viola says in his book, dangerously depleted and captive to the wrong ways of thinking, ways that are continually leading us back to exhaustion. Like as Jesus asked elsewhere, like what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their very life? So, so can we learn practices, what this book calls contemplative rhythms, that will help us navigate our lives in healthier, more intentional ways? Now, I want to be clear for a, a moment here. There's, there's a level of stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that need professional help. And I'm not suggesting that our contemplative rhythms will solve that. Please hear me on that. If, if you're finding yourself pushing to the level beyond what you should cope with, go and talk to someone about that. But I want to invite all of us to explore some deep practices that will help ground us more intentionally in our regular life. Like notice in the story that we just read, how the disciples rush to Jesus with, with, their, with more demands, right? This is just life for you, isn't it? There's always more demands. Everyone is looking for you, they say. Like Jesus is just trying to have some time with God and thump, <laughs> new demands dumped in front of him. And how he responds to me, it suggests something of the depth of his inner life. There will always be external stressors. If it's not COVID, it'll be something else. There's always stuff at the surface on the top of the iceberg that everyone sees, and the pressure is there to respond immediately to that. I think that's where our exhaustion so often comes from. And your ability to respond well to that isn't based on what's happening on the surface, but is actually based on what's happening underneath. The practices and the things you've done that no one sees and no one saw. Early in the morning while it was still dark type of stuff. When you were praying and no one else was around. So with that in mind, notice that Jesus doesn't respond by doing what the disciples want. You know, hey Jesus, everybody is looking for you. Okay, let's go and, let's go and deal with that right now. Instead, Jesus resets to do what he was sent to do. Like, is it, is it possible that Jesus was able to avoid the pressure of exhaustion because he had good spiritual practices? Could that work for many of us? In The Deeply Formed Life, Viodas offers us four practices that I think help us and are connected to Jesus' behavior here in Mark chapter 1. Now, if you've been joining with us in the Big Read Project, then, then you can kind of explore how Rich talks about these in more detail in the book. But I want to highlight them here for you today in a way that should be enough to get you started. Here are the four highlights. Rest, scripture, prayer, and stability. So let's talk about them. Number one, rest. Or perhaps the language you've maybe heard before, Sabbath keeping. This Hebrew word Sabbath referring to a day of rest. 
Like, we tend to work too much and not sleep enough. I think you could say that's a Western problem. And working from home, I think, has blurred the edges for us between work, rest, and play, to the extent that, that some of you are pretty much always working. And even God didn't do that. In the creation story, God invents rest last because if he didn't invent it, I'm not sure we would have taken it. Rest is one of the Ten Commandments, which is probably the one we most forget about. But there it is in the middle of the Ten Commandments. We should rest. Jesus invited us in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28 with these words. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you, and just don't look at the text if you're the kind of person that looks at the text. Jesus will give you more energy. No, Jesus will give you rest. Because see, rest isn't something that we do. It's an invitation that we accept to a life that isn't dominated and distorted by work. Now, listen, I appreciate that some of us just can't think that way. It's like, nope, this isn't how I compute. So please know that it's even been discovered that rest makes you more productive. Athletes who take rest days get faster, quicker than athletes who don't. But in scripture, the reason for rest, as Viodas notes, is different. Sabbath is not rest from making things. It's rest from the need to make something of ourselves. The second uh, thing that we talk about is scripture. Now, it's probably expected that a pastor is going to say, read your Bible, right? It's one of the, <laughs> but it is one of the most consistent ways that Christians across the centuries have spent time with God. The thing Jesus is looking to do in our story today is spend time with God. And like, we are blessed with numerous ways to immerse ourselves in scripture today. Like, you only need to have a phone or a device and you can have audio Bibles or new translations to read. Our WKC Journal app has many different Bibles and audio Bibles built into it alongside all of our sermon notes and videos. Like, you can even follow the links in the side menu of our app to other Bible reading programs and one-year Bibles. But let me just say this for a moment. Reading the Bible isn't about quantity. It's about quality. So whether you are reading a paper Bible or you're reading it on your screen or listening to an audio Bible, try and make sure that your other distractions are out of the way. When the disciples found Jesus, he wasn't spending time with God and checking his Facebook, if you know what I mean. So spending time in scripture isn't an exercise in multitasking, and it isn't an exercise in how much can I read, but it's about spending time in the text and reading it slowly. Number three is prayer, but specifically silent prayer. Our tradition of Christianity has a tendency to be, well, noisy. As a result, our spiritual experiences tend to have constant background noise or music. And this can sometimes maybe be why our tradition has often struggled to connect with God in prayer. And now, like, the noise and the excitement and the enthusiasm of our type of worship, I think, is, is great. But it can sometimes cause us to struggle 
in silence. And so, like, I've experienced so many prayer times personally and corporately that, that essentially amount to sort of grocery lists for God. But what if we just spent time in God's presence? Like, prayer pursues relationship. In great relationships, it's often not about who says what, but about the time in each other's company that we value most. So don't worry if your prayer time isn't dynamic or earth-shattering. That's how our society judges success. Rather, practice and learn just being in Jesus' company. So that when there's noisy times and loud times and exuberant times, you know where Jesus is in that. But also, when you're silent and on your own and working from home, you can find the space to be with Jesus. And fourthly, stability. And I actually think that this is perhaps the most difficult one for us. Like rest and scripture and prayer, like they might sound difficult, but I wonder if, if stability might be the hardest. Our culture pursues change and dissatisfaction constantly. So there's very little that we do regularly. And maybe Jesus' model of doing something that he's clearly familiar with is helpful to us. What, what are the regular practices that bring stability to you and those around you? Like Christian monks often take vows of stability. Like, like there's a term that, like, what does that even mean? Well, a vow of stability is a commitment to be in a particular place and connected to that place and the people who are there. And, and this is a challenge for us when we want to change everything and everyone on a regular basis. But what does it look like for us to stay connected, to not give up on that friendship or that relationship, even if it's, there's conflict or tension, or if you're just too busy or too tired. Maybe a question to ask yourself is, what are the rhythms that you've dropped while working from home? Like, is it time to pick some of them up again, to return to some of that stability? Now, there's four practices for you then. So we have rest, scripture, prayer, and stability. And these practices on one hand are simple, but on the other hand, they could be indispensable. Christian tradition over the years has navigated huge turmoil and difficulty by leaning into these deep practices. And I encourage you to do the same. I, I believe fundamentally that God wants us to have deep lives, lives that are rooted in him. So that when life does what life does, which it will, we don't then spiral and find our shallowness causes us to lose control. I'm convinced that the speed that we live at is damaging for us. More of us are exhausted than we realize. And this is making it harder and harder for us to see God and grow in our relationship with him. So there's my invitation for you today. Step away from the shallowness that leads to exhaustion by just beginning to enact four simple practices that lead to deep formation. Mm -hmm.
And I pray that in doing that, you, you find the depth of your spiritual life coming alive and that starting to change and impact your whole life. So may God's grace and peace be with you.